Well, good morning. Let, uh, let me offer one additional note uh, on the announcements. I mentioned that uh, we're going to have a family meeting after the service. Um, what we would encourage families with kids to do is to maybe have one spouse in the meeting and one spouse corralling the children. And if you can work something out with other parents to watch your kids, great. But uh, we can't uh, just leave them downstairs because the folks downstairs are going to need to be helping out or, or need to be here at the, uh, at the family meeting as well. So... Yesterday, lovely day, wasn't it? Mary and I went down to D.C. along with uh, Matthew and Amy Winter and uh, Jonah and our girls to the National Book Festival. Anybody here ever been to the National Book Festival down in D.C.? If you're into books, if you're into people who are into books, uh, it's a great place to go. And if you're not, then you would, really wouldn't enjoy it very much. But my kids loved it. One of the things is you have all these authors come, and even uh, some of you remember Jewel, right, who's you know, known as the, the singer. Uh, apparently she's written a children's book. She was one of the speakers. It was you know, pretty exciting to see her. Uh, and then there are all these authors that, that uh, the kids are reading that, uh, unfortunately, because the kids are reading, that means the parents are reading as well. Uh, my kids got their picture taken. They got to meet one of their favorite authors, Mary Pope Osborne. I think we have the picture right there. Um, uh, I think the composition of the picture is done very nicely with the porta potties in the background. Uh, but um, Mary Pope Osborne is the is the writer of a series uh, called what is it called again? Sorry, the Magic Treehouse. I knew I was going to forget that the Magic Treehouse. The premise of the Magic Treehouse books is there are these little two kids who go into a treehouse, and as the title would suggest, it's magic. And uh, by means of this magic treehouse, they're able to travel in time and in space to important historical uh, events and personages. So, like, they meet da Vinci, and, you know, uh, no time travel paradoxes have been blown up. They haven't actually, like, accidentally killed Galileo or something. Uh, you can probably take that down. Uh, but uh, one of the things that's infuriating about this series, for those of us who, you know, are a grown-up, is that the books are entirely predictable. They're entirely formulaic. I mean, so my, my job was to wait in line while the kids were listening to Mary Pope Osborne speak so that when she went over to the tent where she was signing, they could actually get in line. So I didn't get a chance to hear her or ask her any questions. But if I had, I, I think I would have asked, you know, have you ever been tempted to kill off your characters? Because when I've been reading the books with the kids, I know I have. I mean, these books are all the same. You know, they are hanging around and just sort of wondering if some adventure is going to happen to them again. And sure enough, every dang book, it does. You know, you wonder, like, what would happen if nothing happened? Like, what would happen if they had a couple chapters of just nothing happening? She wouldn't be able to sell those, would she? Yeah. Yeah. Take, take, I'm getting angry, so you take the picture down, please. Um, but, but, you know, the, the books... the. I mean, and, and I, this is one of the reasons the kid, kids like them, you know, and they will will dedicate themselves to working through the entire corpus, but they find out, of course, that, you know, it really is the same thing. And, you know, you, you can kind of tell how smart your kids are by how soon they realize, hey, this is all really the same thing. But in a lot of ways, you know, literature kind of works the same way for the most part, doesn't it, right? You have, you know, at the beginning, anybody, I'm sorry, this may bring back really awful flashbacks to English class here, but, you know, you have... 
at the beginning you have the exposition, and then you have the rising action, and then you have the climax. The Song of Songs series just keeps hanging out there, doesn't it? And then you have the denouement, and then you have the resolution, right? I mean, this is sort of the map of your typical story, right? Now, you know, in Shakespeare's plays, sometimes, you know, you, you draw it like this, where you have in the middle of the third act is the climax, and then things really fall apart in the fourth, and then in the fifth you have a whole lot of bodies lying around. But, but the point is that, that it, it all kind of follows this way. But Friday was a very important day. Anybody remember what, what important anniversary we had on Friday? Ah, Hobbit, remember? 75th anniversary of the, what's that? No, uh, Friday was not the Emancipation Proclamation. That actually happened several years ago. Uh, The Hobbit, was it the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation? Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) so when J.R.R. Tolkien published The Hobbit, On the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, <laughs> I mean, he, he kind of gave us a story that follows this this arc, right? I mean, Bilbo starts out, or he meets these dwarves, and, you know, they go, I mean, you, you know, there's sort of, you know, things that happen along the way, right? They run into the trolls, and then he gets the, the, the sword, and then he, you know, meets Gollum, and he gets the ring, and so forth. But at the end of the day, Smog dies, and then... You know, you've got a little bit of mini-drama here as the dwarves and humans might kill each other off, but then everybody works it out at the end, and Bilbo gets to go home, right? That's the subtitle, The Hobbit or There and Back Again. And Bilbo gets to go home, and all kind of happily ever after, at least until Peter Jackson comes along and does the remake. So uh, we, we read literature, we watch plays, we watch movies, because they tell some sort of a story that is interesting to follow, right? I mean, when's the last time, again, maybe if you're into sort of, you know, random art house stuff, you might enjoy a movie that you can't follow or where nothing really happens. But for the most part, we read these stories, they have some sort of a, a plot, some sort of structure, things happen in them, there's some sort of major climax, then there's, you know, maybe a resolution where everything works out fine, maybe a resolution where you know, it sort of tails off and maybe something else interesting is going to happen. This is setting things up for a sequel. But the fact of the matter is we read these stories. They're interesting. They're exciting. They're dramatic. And we get to escape there for a little bit. If you're there on the mall in D.C. yesterday, you have people who are living all sorts of different lives, most of them quite ordinary. You can escape into these books for a while and enjoy them. But most of us are living lives that are not right here all the time, right? Most of us are living somewhere along this. If you think about your whole life and the flow of your whole life, you know, maybe you're in the, the part of the rising and action that where things are happening and then something is normal and then things happen again. You're just kind of moving along. Or, you know, maybe you've had some major event happen in your life, right? Maybe you got married, had a kid, uh, started a business, something really exciting happened, you had this sort of climax, but now you're living in what happens afterward, right? So if this is a book, maybe, you know, our lives look kind of like this. And most of our time is spent when things are fairly 
kind of ordinary. This may be, incidentally, why some people, you know, bring drama to everything, is they can't handle that. I find those people difficult to deal with. <clears throat> and so the question is, all right, living real lives, being real people, how do we do this if it's not drama? The, the answer that Paul gives us in Romans 5 is hope. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. read last week. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering Produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Fear, Master Yoda taught us, leads to anger. Anger leads to hatred. Hatred leads to suffering. But suffering, Paul says, ultimately can lead to hope. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, doesn't let us down because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. This, Paul says, is what it's about. It's hope. Now, often people get confused about what hope is. A lot of times people confuse hope for something else, something that I think is the dark side of hope, namely optimism. You ever heard people talk about optimism in a positive way? People say, well, I'm optimistic. I mean, there's a whole club of people. They call themselves the optimists. I would probably not fit in. Optimism, well... Let's look at the root of the word. Op. What other words do we have that have op in them? Optional. Yeah, right. Calling the option. That's when you're hoping for something else. What? Opportunity, maybe. Optic. Optic. Yes, I, I see this going back to words like optic or optical. Optimism is basically a decision on how you see the world. Optimism is a decision to see the world through rose-colored glasses. Optimism is a decision to expect that things are going to be better. Right? The opposite of optimism, of course, is pessimism, which is a decision to see the world how. What's that? Yeah, you expect to see things getting worse if you're a pessimist. Right? If you're an optimist, you expect to see things better. If you're a pessimist, you expect to see them getting worse. Um, and the bright side of pessimism, I would suggest, what? Yeah, well, no, I mean, 
in a lot of ways, pessimism is sort of the shadow side of realism. Realism is dealing with the world as it is. Might be good, might be bad. Pessimist expects to see things bad all the time, right? Some people, in fact, will expect that everything will be bad, and then if they're right, they at least have the satisfaction of knowing they were right, and if not, then they're pleasantly surprised, right? Problems, problem with pessimism, of course, is that it le leads to what? Well, eventually, but first... <laughs> Eventually, it leads to cynicism, right? Pessimism leads to cynicism, where it, which is kind of a, a pessimism with a, with a hard edge to it. Not just a, an expectation that things are, are going to get worse, but a conviction that that's really the way things are. They can't possibly get any better. I mean, I know I can be pretty cynical, and I probably always will be. But that's, that's what pessimism ultimately devolves to, is it devolves to cynicism. And then, yes, I think ultimately cynicism will lead you to despair. And again, breaking down the word despair, anybody know what that comes from? What's that? Well, desperate, yes, but, but let's see, anybody had French? Des espérance without hope. Literally, despair is the absence of hope. But optimism doesn't always work out either, right? What, what ultimately optimism is going to lead to disappointment at the very least, right? I mean, if you decide everything's going to be better and then it isn't, then you're disappointed. And not just disappointed, I would suggest. What other things might you feel if you're optimistic? If you're sure this is going to be the best party ever. Again, having young children. You watch these Disney movies, right? It's going to be the best X ever. That's what they all say. Don't they? Right? It's going to be the best. What if it isn't? You feel sad, you feel disappointed, sadness, betrayal. Good, good, good luck holding on to that. Yeah, what? Well, if you can hang on to that, if you can hang on to that, good, good, good luck. Good luck to you for that. Some people can manage that. Yes, Mary? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, if it was false, then that would lead to disillusionment. Right? You realize that your optimism was an illusion. It was false. That, in fact, your the, the, the glasses, the rose-colored lenses you were looking through are, in fact distorted. And you see the world as it really is and you're disillusioned. Right? What else could it lead to? Let's get... Well, we'll get there. Give me a second. What, what, what else might happen if you're 
let's say you not only say it's going to be the best party ever, but you tell everybody it's going to be the best party ever. And then it isn't. And then it's lame. Then, like, everybody's standing around, and it's like a middle school dance, and it's awkward. You look like a fool, right? Shame. Humiliation. Again, I confess, I'm more inclined to this side, so I see a lot more of this. But, but yeah, you experience shame. You experience humiliation. You look like an idiot, right? Because you're saying everything's going to be great, and guess what? It wasn't. And yes, ultimately all this, I think, is going to lead you as well to despair, isn't it? No? Well, give, give me a moment there. <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't think, yes, Marlene. See, the benefit of realism, being part of the reality-based community, as you might say, is that you deal with things as they are. And as things really are, right, sometimes they get better, sometimes they get worse, but you deal with things as they really are. Well, okay, now there are people who have a skewed idea of what things really are, and those people just need to get hit with a shovel of wisdom sometimes. Assuming you can have some sort of a clear perception of what things really are, which, again, is in some cases is quite the assumption, realism means, realism means you recognize why people might be pessimistic or might be optimistic. You realize people see that things can get worse or they, they can get better, but you hold both of those. You recognize both of those. But hope held in tension with realism enables you to avoid falling down into any of this because hope is not only the realistic understanding of how things are in the sense that they can get better, they can get worse, but hope has to do with a confidence, with a sure and certain confidence in two very important things. Not exactly. Give me a second here. See, believe it or not, there's a lot of wisdom on this in, uh, in, in the work of a guy who's not a Christian at all. And, and I guess this is literature, Morning at New Hope. Anybody familiar with Václav Havel? He was a Czech playwright. He uh, a brilliant writer and was a, um, uh, in fact, uh, was uh, the president of Czechoslovakia. What's that? Oh, the Czech, sorry, the Czech Republic. Yes, right, after they split. Thank you. He, he had this to say about hope. He said that hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not, as optimism is, the conviction that something will turn out well. But it's the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. In short, I think the deepest and most important form of hope, the only one, that can keep us above water and urge us to good works 
the only true source of the the breathtaking dimension of the human spirit and its efforts, is something we get, as it were, from elsewhere. It's also this hope, above all, which gives us the strength to live and continually to try new things, even in conditions that seem as hopeless as ours do here and now. He's giving this these comments in an interview while he is uh, under persecution by the communist regime, uh, having you know been imprisoned several times and uh, had his plays shut down and his books burned and all that sort of thing. Um, He's saying hope is not a conviction that things are going to get better, as optimism is, but hope has to do with something that you get from somewhere else that enables you to deal with things as they are. And those two things are, I think, for us as believers, and he elsewhere talks about how Christians can actually uh, can actually get this in some ways a lot easier than those who aren't, has to do with a confidence in God's future, victory, and in God's present love, or present, God's presence in the now. In a sense, hope is a bridge that's strung between these two posts. Can you believe I never made it as an artist? I just, I don't know. Yeah. And there's the toll. You hear New York wants to charge $15 to go to the Verrazano and Ayers Bridge? Yes. Yeah, I know. That's the worst part. You get, you get it both ways. It's not like, not like the uh, GW. So, um, yeah, it's hard living in Staten Island. So, God's, God's, victory in the future is something we have confidence in, right? Like eventually, God is going to sort all this out. Remember, we've, as we've looked at the, the different prophets and what they've had to say about this, we saw this in Ezekiel, for example, but we also saw it when we looked at Jeremiah's prophecies and when we looked at, at uh, or Zechariah's prophecies and Isaiah, that God is ultimately going to sort things out, but that now, before things are ultimately sorted out completely, He's still with us, right? Again, let's look at what Paul says about this. We boast. You may have rejoiced. Boast is just as good a word, if not better. We boast, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And there's an aspect of that which absolutely is future, right? The day when God does finally wipe out all of his enemies, they either come and and embrace him, or he deals with them, bless you forever. But that also that glory is also present, right? Because hope does not disappoint us, Paul says, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. In the old King James, God hath shed abroad in our hearts his love through the Holy Ghost. God has given us his love in the Holy Spirit, and it's in our hearts right now. This, incidentally, is a new hope. This is not the kind of hope that an Old Testament believer would have had. The sense of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is not what we find in the New Testament teaching about the Holy Spirit. This is something that comes through Christ. 
So we not only have a hope in God's future victory, but we have a confidence in his present presence and his love for us now, his love that ultimately is going to win the day and his love that is here with us now. And so what that means then is that suffering isn't to be embraced just because you get points for having borne up under it. I mean, if you're, you know, I, 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 I confess in preparation for this, I watched a few Ray Lewis motivational videos. They're fascinating. They're really interesting. The really interesting one I thought was like the two-minute one where he does the Stanford basketball team. Go on, go on, and, and on YouTube and search on Ray Lewis, Stanford NIT. He goes and he gives this two-minute motivational speech that has these guys all fired up and, frankly, seems to have absolutely nothing to do with anything. I mean, it's, it's sort of like a, a clip from every motivational speech you might have ever heard, all jumbled together, and he gives it, and then they get excited. This is, I guess, you know, somebody somebody wrote, you know, I, I, I my chihuahua rage, watched this and then went out and beat up a Rottweiler. Some people can just manage that, get you all fired up, get you excited. But, you know, the the, the truth is that often life is not just a matter of getting through the next thing. Often life is a long slog. Often we spend time in places like those depicted on the cover of your bulletin. As we know, sometimes these long meetings in the conference room are things to be endured. And it may be helpful for you to think, well, I guess this Suffering, producing endurance, is then going to produce character, which ultimately will produce hope. That can be useful. But what Paul is giving us here is a bigger framework. It's not just about moral improvement. It's not just about hoping for something better, looking forward to something better, assuming that things are going to get better at some point. Not just about that. And it's not just about dealing with the reality of suffering and saying, well, you're going to... You're going to suffer, you may as well try to make something of it. No, Paul's saying there's a bigger story being told. Because remember, he's writing this story, not this letter, not just in a vacuum. He's not just writing this letter because somebody said, hey, Paul, can you give us a little motivational talk? He's writing this letter to a specific people, in fact, a specific congregation at a specific time. He's writing to the church in Rome, a church which has people in it that have faced severe persecution, that have dealt with suffering, a church that has both Jews and Gentiles in it, both of whom are dealing with the difficulties of following Jesus coming from the different communities they've come from, not only dealing with the people that they have been part of, but dealing with one another. You've got all these different expectations different preferences as to how God ought to be honored. There's all sorts of suffering in terms of conflict going on within the body, let alone with what's going on with the people who are persecuting them from outside. Bless you. And as, as we saw in the very beginning of this letter, Paul is writing this because he, having dealt with a great deal of persecution and suffering himself, is in the process of moving forward with this story that God is writing in his life and in the lives of the congregations that he's a part of. You've got to believe that Paul, as he is getting beaten up in the umpteenth synagogue, as he's getting thrown out of town, as he's getting the 
gazillionth rock thrown at him as he's dealing with the, the next person accusing him of being unfaithful to the one true God. That He knows what it's like to remember, ultimately God's going to work this out. And he loves me right now. And somehow, I have to walk this bridge trusting that I'm really not the one who designed it. I'm not the one who laid it out. I just have to walk it. God's the one who's writing this story. It's God's love that has been shed abroad in our hearts. God's love that has been poured out. And if it weren't, there wouldn't be cause for boasting, right? Earlier on, Paul is saying, you know, all sorts of things you guys are boasting in, uh, you're going to look like idiots if you're boasting in those things. But here's something you can boast in. You can boast in the hope of the glory of God as it is ultimately revealed and as we see the first fruits of it now. This is the kind of robust, solid hope, Paul says, that is going to sustain us. This is not wishful thinking. This is the real deal. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for your love that you have poured out through the Holy Spirit. And we know because you have told us and we know because we have experienced it that you are present with us in the midst of sufferings, in the midst of victories and joy. We have known what it is to suffer. We have known what it is to rejoice. And so we pray, Lord, that when we suffer, we would suffer in you. And when we rejoice, we would rejoice in you. That this would not be something that we try to pull off by our own moral effort. But that we would recognize and embrace the fact that this is all part of a story that you are writing that the privilege we have is of being part of that. And whether we feel like our story is exciting in a given moment or not, whether we are in a difficult moment of testing or just getting through the next day, we pray that we would know personally, know intimately the love you have for us, that we would live in that love, that we would keep our hope centered on you, knowing that one day all of your purposes will be fulfilled and all of this will ultimately make sense, but that it's your job to make that happen and it's your timing that we trust to. We pray that our hope would always be centered in you. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.